looking at candidly is that a lot of times we have been gathering for protection, for isolation from the bad people out there. And we're afraid of our community we've been looking at the last month. Some even perhaps regretting living in our community. And so we gather with like-minded people as a refuge, but in that position we, we, we fail to go out and to proclaim and to evangelize and to love our community. And so to overcome that habit, we've been looking at the challenge from God's Word to love our community well. We've been spending a lot of time in Jeremiah 29 where God says, go out and bless where you live. Make your city healthy. And in their health, you'll find your health. And so we've been really looking into that for the last month. And so now we're going to kind of move on to the next step. Okay, so first step is to see God's Word says, go out into your city and make it healthy. The next step is, okay, doing it, basically. And to do that, we're going to have to get out of our comfort zones. So over the next month and a half, between now and Easter, we're going to look at getting out of the various comfort zones that we as Christians tend to have and how God's Word calls us out of those. We're going to look at embracing suffering instead of avoiding suffering. We're going to look at the call to be a weird, non-judgmental, open community that the world does not have all the onus to be an inclusive place of no judgment. Actually, that's what the church is supposed to be. We're going to look at loving and caring for creation. You know that environmentalist wacko stuff we like to deride? We're going to look at that. We're going to look at honoring God during the week, not just on Sunday morning. And then today, we're going to look at loving our community, even when it may hurt or be uncomfortable for us. So to do that, we're going to be in Acts chapter 28. Paul is on his way to Rome in a ship. He's going to stand trial, but he's doing it in fulfillment of a promise from God that he himself would testify the gospel before Caesar. God told Paul, Paul believed that you were going to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ before Caesar himself. That was Paul's focus. That was Paul's mission. He was in chains on guard on this ship of 276 people. It's not a prison ship. They weren't 276 prisoners. They were just people on a big grain ship that crisscrossed the med all throughout the Roman Empire. And they have endured a just ridiculous storm for two weeks, which is actually quite common. And the ship, at the end of chapter 27, runs aground and it breaks up. But all 276 people survive and our story picks up right there at that point. So would you look with me at Acts chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. <clears throat> this is God's Word. After we were brought safely through... We then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. 
Now in the neighborhood of that place were, were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Now, this is God's Word. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, as we come before Your Word today, we do ask that You would speak to us in Your Word. That You would give us truth, Lord, for our growth, for our transformation. Would You make us deeper disciples? Now, we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so Paul and his people end up on this island called Malta. And to make sure you understand the, the direction of this chapter, Paul was not looking for a Maltese getaway. Okay, none of the people on that ship expected to end up there. They probably regretted being there, washed up on a beach at first. Very similar to how, again, in private conversation, many of you have admitted to feeling about Orangeburg. And so as we begin this new series, I want you to see this connection. Paul, as most of the early church did, applies the mandate of Jeremiah 29. Love your city, seek their health, because that's where your health is. He applies that throughout the Roman Empire, and he applies it here in this chapter. He serves his place, because that's where he happens to be. Even when it's less than ideal, he serves right there. So that's kind of our uh, starting point, we'll say, this morning. The theme of what we're going to talk about today is this, is that life often bites, and when we endure it, others notice, and they want to know how. So we're going to see that when Paul steps outside of his comfort to serve others, it bites him, but he continues to give anyway, and it leads to God's blessing. So let's look at that. I want you to understand first where we are, okay, Christians serve even when they're bitten. I want you to see in your mind, okay? I want you to see the Mediterranean Sea. Okay, kids, if you don't know where this is, I, I can't help you. I had a picture, sorry. Okay, I want you to see Italy, the boot, right? Okay, and the little weird-shaped football the boot is kicking is Sicily. Okay, and right off the coast of Sicily is itty-bitty island called Malta. That's where we are. Okay, very precarious seas. Today it is a uh, vacation resort, unbelievable white sand beaches. Very pretty. And so right where they are is this little bay that... Today is called, of all things, oddly enough, St. Paul's Bay. I wonder why. Anyway, so they're on this little bay, and so the text opens with this scene, kind of like the pilot episode of Lost. All these, there's 276 people on the, sh on the shore all of a sudden looking around, trying to figure out what's going on. They're wet. It's a cold day in mid-fall, kind of, you know, like what we experience here in early November, late October. So imagine a, you're wet. It's raining and it's cold. Okay, you're not having your best life now, for sure. And so the natives of the island see this shipwreck and they're already on the beach with bonfires ready to go to help these people, helping the castaways. The text says they show unusual kindness. Literally, the word there is actually the word philanthropy. You ever want to know what philanthropy comes from? It's right there, unusual kindness. What I see in my mind is I see blankets, I see hot fires, I see maybe you know, cups of soup being passed around or some sort of broth. And 
It's done by these people that the ESV version calls natives, but actually in Greek it's the word barbarian. Now that's not as much of an insult then as it kind of is today. It just means someone who's different from us. They're not like us. They're not mainland Roman sophisticated folk like us. They're other. They're different. And so these different, unknown, other people, they are showing unusual kindness. And let's jump in on that right there. And as we are looking to serve our community, as we're looking to love our community, we want to be very clear about something that this text helps us remember. The church is not the only good thing going on in the world. Sometimes we tend to think it is. As we seek to love our place, as we seek to serve Orangeburg, to make Orangeburg more beautiful, to make Orangeburg healthy, oftentimes that means jumping into what unbelievers are already doing, already serving. That's exactly what Paul does here. He is not a young man by any stretch of the imagination at this point at all. He was no less wet. He was no less cold than anybody else. And what does the Apostle Paul do? He starts helping the Maltese serve these castaways. He starts combing the beach for firewood to help all these bonfires for 276 people. And right as Paul is serving, right as he's being selfless, he grabs a bundle of sticks. And you can see the detail in the text, can't you? How it slows down and gets longer sentences and more detail. He gets close to the fire. All of a sudden a snake jumps out and the word is fastened onto his hand. Can't you see it? Snake dangling there. And he's like, ah, the next verse says what? He he shakes it off. Can you see in your mind the snake hanging from his hand? It jumps out, grabs him and holds on. Now, I've never been snake bitten. Thank God. Maybe you have. I've never been snake bitten. But I've been scared by a snake before. I remember growing up in Wyoming, uh, I was about seven, eight years old, and we didn't have a dog at the time, and we were out, I believe, dove hunting. And so it's about this time of year, as this text is mid-fall, and my dad is having me, as the dog, run up and down these fields, these rows of fields, to flush up the doves, which he would then shoot. And so I run up one, run down the other, and as I'm running down this, uh, this next aisle, I, the ground looks weird in front of me, and I run, and all of a sudden something in my brain just has stopped. So I stop, and like as close as I am to this pulpit, all of a sudden the ground starts moving, and I see coiling in front of me a great old big rocky, this is Wyoming, Rocky Mountain rattlesnake is right there. Curls up, and I just move. And he's so close, I can see his eyes. I can see his pupils, those pupils, and he does that thing that rattlesnakes do that just goes right into your soul. He, and that's like, you know, I'm seven, eight years old, and I kind of turn around and look behind me, and my dad just seems so far away. And so I just, is what I could utter, Dad, and I just don't move. And I'm looking at this snake. And this is not an adult interpretation of a child's memory. I distinctly remember having this thought. This snake is going to bite me. I'm going to die, and it's going to hurt the whole time I'm dying. Which is tragically funny. You can laugh at that. That's okay. I know. And then way sooner than I should have, I hear my dad's strong, calm voice, Sean, don't move. You know, and inside I'm like, freaking duh! But you know, out, out, out when I went, yes, sir. And I hear the most comforting sound in the world in this situation, the sound of a shotgun shell being chambered. And I look at the snake, and in my mind I'm like, and the snake just explodes in front of me. 
And all the fear is gone, all the fear is lifted, and we went back to running down aisles. I was a little more careful with what I did. But I knew that paralyzing fear, I knew, I, I just knew I was about to die. And I didn't want to. And here's Paul trying to be a good guy here, and he's serving when this happens. The snake jumps out and grabs onto him. Now he's bitten and he's dying. Verse 4 and verse 6 clearly show they expected him to die. How about you? You ever been bitten? Maybe not by a snake. Maybe it was in a relationship. Maybe it was a business deal. Maybe it was office politics. Maybe it's just good old plain vanilla gossip. Being bitten stinks, doesn't it? Especially if we are right in the midst of trying to do something good, right in the midst of serving, like Paul was here. He's carrying fuel for a fire to help keep people warm, and now everyone's gawking at him, waiting for his ultimate failure and death. You know, in a town like ours, that's so connected most people know each other already. And those of us who profess Christ, you need to recognize you're being watched. And when that inevitable bite comes, people are watching to see if our Christianity is real. They are asking, okay, let's see, now that something bad has happened to your charmed life, are you going to react by by pouting and being bitter and sullen like everybody else does, or do you really have other resources? Let's just see. See, that, and that's the point I want you to see here, is that our bites are not just about us, and that God is sovereign over our bites. We're not alone, and those bites involve others. These guys are watching Paul so closely because they knew how the universe worked. Verse 4, you look there in verse 4, what's that little phrase there? It says justice has not allowed him to live. Now I don't know if your translation does or not, there should be a capital J on justice. It's being used as a proper name in this, in this aspect. Okay, those of you who like sports and tennis shoes, you, everybody, anybody ever heard of Nike tennis shoes? This is class participation time. Raise your hand. Anybody heard of Nikes, right? Right. Everybody's heard of Nikes. It's actually the Greek word Nike, which means victory. She was a person. The goddess of victory was Nike, and so they decided to name their shoes Nike, but because it's English, we call it Nike. Same word begins with a D. Instead of an N is DK. That was the goddess justice. You've seen her. Blind holding the scales, right? And, and in the Greek version, you don't often see this in the Western version. In the Greek version, she's also got a sword. Because if the scales go wrong, she's going to kill you. That was justice. They knew she was real. You ask them, the gods are real, justice is going to get you. They knew that's how the universe worked. Bad people do bad things, and justice gets them for it. They get bad stuff that happens in their life. Good people do good things, and justice rewards them. That's how life works. They knew it. And so they figured Paul out right away. Oh, he looks all nice and kind and serving. He's trying to trick justice into thinking he's good, but she's not fooled. She gets him. He must be a murderer because justice just killed him. And so they're watching. They're waiting for him to scream out in defiance to the gods, or they're watching him to beg to the gods for mercy and Paul doesn't freak out. He doesn't scream in agony. 
He doesn't scream out in contempt of God. Why have you done this to me? A two-week storm with the sea? Seriously? And now this? You know, long before Taylor Swift's repetitive song, Paul just shakes it off and goes back to serving. And most importantly, he doesn't die. He got right back to serving because he knew. They had what they knew. Well, Paul knew something too. He knew that God said, you are standing before Caesar to proclaim my name. He knew it. This little snake wasn't going to stop him. He had a mission to accomplish. He just shakes it off. Oh, dear flock, the bites in our life come. How we react to those hardships shows what we really believe. It shows what we know. Do we really believe that we have a calling from God to make Orangeburg better? Because as we seek to serve our community, we are going to be bitten. It will hurt. Will we shake it off and say, this is my calling, I'm not going to be stopped by this? Or not? And that is not, oh, you better pull yourself up and be... No, that... Only the gospel can give us that kind of power. Because when that relationship bites you, it's only in the gospel where you see, I have been forgiven by one whom I have offended, so I can forgive this person and just shake it off. Even though they haven't apologized, in the gospel, I can forgive them. When that business deal bites you, in the gospel, you can forgive even though they have wronged you. You have a legitimate beef with them. You can forgive them in the gospel. When that person just won't stop talking about you. In the gospel, you can forgive them. Because see, God has a bigger plan for you to take the gospel to your community. And those little bites are just not going to distract you. Because you have the power of the gospel in you. We need to hear that. Because you and I may not believe in a personified goddess of justice, but we often act as if she's real, don't we? If I do good things, God owes me a good life. And so if I'm doing good things and I get bitten, well, God owes me. And I'm not serving until he makes it up. Come on, lottery, tax return, something. Pay me back, God. See, when the bite comes, if we're bitter, if we're sullen, it's because we're not living in the gospel. Because in the gospel we realize God does not owe us a good life. But in His grace He has forgiven us of our sins in the gospel. And so we can serve with freedom saying, Jesus got what I deserved and so I can be free not to worry about what I deserve. And we can love and serve our community in that. Well, maybe that's not resonating with you. Let's, let's make it a little bit bigger. Something that I bet resonates with most of you. Christians all over America just last week were bitten. At the presidential prayer breakfast, our president tried his hand at being a theologian and church historian. And whenever a politician does that, it, it doesn't go well. And he said what most of you probably know he said. You know, many commentators, both religious and unreligious, have noted it's kind of unique that he went out of his way never to mention Islam by name. In fact, the only religion he felt comfortable directly condemning for being violent was Christianity. Our president bit us. It's frustrating being part 
of the only religion that Western culture feels free to bite at will. But see, that's the opportunity. Why do politicians and cultural leaders feel so comfortable and safe biting us? Because they know we won't kill them when they do. Our calling is to be what? Come and die with me, said Jesus. Our calling is to get bitten while you serve. We are not to go and kill religion. And so we expect the bites. And so when they come, we should not. I'm sure none of you were on Facebook. Other Christians were. But none of you were bitter and sullen and pouting about the president's remarks on Facebook. You were rejoicing that you got bitten again and and had a chance. Wow, he knows that we believe the gospel and that we won't bite him back. Praise God, he feels so free. We have been great witnesses. He has no fear of us whatsoever. See, it's a testimony to the church's response to being bitten that we keep getting bitten. They're not scared of us because we do what Jesus said. They know we won't retaliate. That's a good place to be. Because as our culture becomes more and more hostile to Christians, our response to their bites is what's going to be heard by that culture. When we stand firm on the gospel, when we say Christ was killed and bitten to forgive a sinner like me, in that confidence, bite me all you want. I will still serve you because Christians serve even when bitten. Next thing we see here from this story is that Christians give even when it's uncomfortable. So these people are watching Paul. They're watching Paul not die. And they think justice has spared him. He must be one of the gods too then. Because again, they knew how the universe operated. They knew that strict justice reigns. Bad people get bad, good people get good. And when the universe didn't work that way, the only explanation is, well, the gods are messing with justice again. Again, most people still operate, even today, out of a justice mindset, don't they? Call it a karma mindset, if you will. Either way, Good people get good, bad people get bad. And so when mercy and grace, when people serve even while bitten, it messes them up. They have no concept for it. And so they say, they look for whatever explanation they can get. And for Paul, being called a God was definitely very uncomfortable. It's happened to him before in the book of Acts and he freaked out. He doesn't freak out here because they don't start worshiping him. It's a little weird. They kind of say, you're a God. And they kind of just like, what do we do with them? Instead of falling down and worshiping him. So since they're not worshiping him, he doesn't necessarily stop it. It makes him uncomfortable, but he uses it as an opportunity to advance the gospel. Now everything I'm about to say is indirect evidence. We have to kind of glean it from the chapter, especially with their reaction from verse 10. But we also know from Paul in the book of Acts that Paul is a preacher. You give Paul an opportunity to talk about real issues by calling him a god... And you're going to hear about Jesus. They show themselves to be aware of justice. So I have no doubt that Paul says, I am not a God, but let's talk about justice. And let's, let's talk about serpents. And let's talk about death. And let's talk about God intervening and changing the way justice works. See, most people live out of a justice mindset. And they are guilty before a holy God and they feel it. And they feel that something must be done. And so maybe Paul just pointed, you know what, see these marks on my hand? 
we're, we're, we're all bitten, actually, by sin and death. We're all dying. And justice will punish you for that sin unless justice punishes somebody else. Maybe he said something like, you know, there is a Creator God who has made a way that you think I'm a God, but I'm not. But your instincts are correct. God did come down and walk among us in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. He, he lived the life you should have lived to save you from justice. He died the death you should have died to deliver you from guilt's bite. And in His resurrection, He destroyed death so you no longer have to be harassed by that viper of death. We have no record of this, obviously. It's not, I mean, we just read the, the, the passage. But the whole book of Acts shows us Paul preaches the gospel at every opportunity. And I have no doubt he did it here. And it makes a difference. And so after this, they, he doesn't die. So they get warmed up on the beach, and now they go to the big man's house there on Malta. A guy named Publius. And the, the, the text says us. I don't know if it's just Luke who wrote the book of Acts and Paul, or if it's all 276. It seems that, again, Paul wasn't known as the Apostle Paul in his time. They didn't name it St. Paul's Bay that day. You know, he was nobody. Most likely, this guy is hosting all 276 people for several days until housing can be arranged for them. Anyway, Paul's there and he hears about the guy, the guy's dad's upstairs dying. And so look with me at verse 8. What does Paul do when he hears about this? Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him, healed him. So why does Paul do this? Paul doesn't know this guy. Because Paul gets the gospel. Sickness, dying, death are not supposed to be here. They're invaders, and God has commissioned His people into the world to spread His kingdom of health against the enemy of darkness and death. That's what it means. Remember Jeremiah 29, we looked at the idea of shalom, meaning it doesn't just mean peace, it means wholeness, it means health. The gospel comes where there is sickness and sin and disease, and we should pray over those people and say, this should not be here. Lord, would you redeem this and heal this? That's the mandate we've been looking at for the last month in Jeremiah 29. Serve your city, make them healthy, because in their health is your health. Christians are supposed to make things better. And Paul does that. Do you believe that God cares about the physical dimension of our life and the lives around us? Because very often we slip into a kind of dualistic, spiritual, physical. God cares about the spiritual stuff, but this physical stuff, we're on our own. Paul says, shows no. Paul sees it as his mission to help in the physical realm. He sees people harassed by the ravages of sin and sickness, and so he does something about it. He spends, as we're going to see, three months in a primarily physical ministry. We're assuming there was some preaching there because that would be totally against what we know of Paul if there weren't. But the record is of his physical ministry there. You know, after, after finishing the series about loving Orangeburg, I, I was asked, okay, this has been a nice series, so what new project, what new program are you going to launch to help us do this? What, what's, what, what's the new ministry focus? And I said, nothing. No, there is no new program. 
It is the session's hope that the people of Trinity will step out of their comfort zones and just go across the street to their neighbors. That's the program. Here's what I mean. As we said before, Paul was not on a mission to Malta. He knew he was going to preach the gospel to Caesar in Rome. Malta was out of his way, yet he was there. Malta had a need, and so he worked to make it better. Trinity, our community needs us. Where are the needs? We're here. We're called to make it better. Where can we look? Just this week, I was talking to our new church planter, and his kids are going to the public school, and, and you know, they're, they're struggling with that transition. And he, he went to visit the school administrators and just said, Hey, I'm available. I'd like to volunteer. I'd like to help. And, and he came back from that meeting, and he, he told John Mark and I, He goes, Okay, now I'm overwhelmed. They need so much help. They don't have any parents who are really involved. I was, there's, there's so much to do. I couldn't believe it. So guess what? I know Paul wasn't planning on going to Malta. Maybe there are certain things you're not planning on, but there's a need you need to be involved in. Okay, your kids go to OP. Great. You homeschool your kids. Great. Your kids are out of the house. You're an empty nester. Great. The public school is not even on your radar, but it's there. It needs help. Getting outside of your comfort zone, may living out the mandate to love Orangeburg, perhaps that means serving at a school where your only connection to it is you live in its district. You don't go there, your kids didn't go there, you don't know anybody there. Why not? It's there, there's a need. Oh, dear flock, as our culture changes, as it begins to look, honestly, as it begins to look more like Rome and Malta, Because of our discomfort with that cultural change, we can start seeing people who are different from us as barbarians out to destroy America. But that's not what Paul did. Paul looked at these people through the eyes of the gospel. He didn't see pagans. He didn't see barbarians. He didn't see unbelievers. He saw pre-believers. He lived among them. He loved them. He brought them healing. He brought them beauty by the grace of God in the gospel. See, getting out of our comfort zone means we give, even when it's uncomfortable. That's how we love our community. And what happens when that happens is God blesses even beyond what we expect. The text tells us they stayed there for just three months. And in that time, Paul inadvertently planted the ongoing church on Malta. It began with a snake bite and ended with the church. God blessed it beyond anyone, anyone's imagination. In fact, church tradition tells us that the first bishop, pastor if you will, of the church at Malta was Publius, our friend from verse 7 who had the big enough house where he could gather everybody to worship on the Lord's Day. What a great idea. And then in verse 10, it tells us that they honored us greatly. Literally translated, they honored us with honor. They held us in the highest esteem. After a mere three months, they loved Paul. They were so grateful he had been there. Oh, dear flock, that's the challenge for us. In the the various places in our community, the clubs we're a part of, the, the place where we work, our children's sports teams, the school our kids go to, would they give us the highest honors? Not because we're so great, 
but because God has used us for their good. So that they say, I'm so glad this person's here. They are a real Christian. They make this place more beautiful. Would Orangeburg say that about Trinity? Do we believe that God can bless us and our community like that by the gospel? Because that is the challenge of this text. That we get out of our comfort zone. That we step into the scary unknown. Risk getting bitten and serve to make the community more beautiful through the gospel. Maybe you're just not there yet with loving Orangeburg. Okay? Maybe it needs to be a little bit bigger for you. Do you want your culture to hear you again? Do you want to be an influence in the direction of the country? Then serve. But understand this. It is the time of biting in America. Christianity is more and more marginalized and we are going to be bitten. Our reaction to being bitten will show what we really believe. So by the gospel, serve. Bring something beautiful to your community. It's not going to be easy. We're going to have to get out of our own comfort zones. But God will bless it beyond what we can imagine, if we will. And I just want to close with this. I've, I've been talking today primarily to those who are already Christians, those who've, who've confessed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord. Now I want to speak to those of you who, who don't know yet. Maybe you're still looking at this Christianity thing or maybe you used to go to church a long time ago and you had a bad experience and you're kind of just here as a fluke or whatever. If you're not sure what to think about Jesus Christ, I'm going to speak to you for just a moment. At the very beginning of the story God has given us in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, after Adam and Eve have fallen from innocence in a story we all know, or most of us know, they sinned against their holy creator God. God comes to them and he speaks a word of hope in Genesis chapter 3. He promises that he will send someone who will come from Eve, who will crush the head of the serpent that just led them into temptation. That serpent will bite him, but he will crush his head. As the story continues... Jesus Christ comes as a son of Eve. There's a reason in Luke's gospel he traces the genealogy all the way back to Eve, tying into this promise. And Jesus comes as the one who does crush the serpent's head. And in so doing, that serpent bit him in death, but in the resurrection he came back and crushed the head of that serpent. Because Jesus Christ, he came and he, he lived a perfect life of obedience and therefore, he did not deserve to die. Yet, out of love, he chose to die for his people, to pay the penalty for their sins. Three days later in his resurrection, because death could not hold an innocent man, he shook off that snake bite and crushed its head. That victory over death, that victory over sin can be yours in the gospel. Cast off that justice mentality that you're raised with. You don't have to try to earn this from God. You don't have to try to make yourself look good for God. You can't do this. 
The beauty of the gospel of grace, the essence of Christianity is that if you will simply place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, He will change you. He will put the scales of justice in your favor. He will forgive you. He will heal you. He will make you part of His family. Now, if you've never come to the point in your life where you have done that, if you've confessed faith in Jesus Christ, I implore you today, do it, do it now. Don't delay. You can become part of His family, even in this moment. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank You that Your Word tells us, promises us, that in the fullness of time You sent forth Your Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us from the curse of the law. Lord, we pray that You would be true to Your promise that as Christ has been lifted up, He would draw all people to Himself. We pray, Lord, that even in this moment, You would call men and women from death to life, that You would birth salvation in someone even in this moment. Perhaps you're sitting here this morning and you, you see it. You didn't really see Christ before, but now you see it and you want this. All you have to do is pray something like this. I believe, Lord Jesus, that you are the resurrected Lord, the Son of God. I believe that you died for my sins. And I ask that you would forgive me and make me part of your family by the gospel. That's it. And if you did that, would you talk to the person who brought you here or maybe come see me or a friend? We'd love to talk with you. Father, for the rest of us, we pray that you would burn this example of Paul, this calling to make our city beautiful into our heart. Would you help us to get out of our comfort zones, to risk being bitten, to love, to go serve where it's uncomfortable, and to look to you to bless it. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.